are listening to the most original talk radio station anywhere. We are L.A. Talk Radio at latalkradio.com. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. The Sapphire Planet. Skylab was a space station launched and operated by NASA and was the United States' first space station. Skylab orbited the Earth from 1973 to 1979 and included a workshop, a solar observatory, and other systems. It was launched unmanned by a modified Saturn V rocket with a mass of 170,000 pounds, or 77 tons. Three manned missions to the station, conducted between 1973 and 1974, using the Apollo Command Service Module, or CSM, atop the smaller Saturn 1B rocket. Each delivered a three-astronaut crew. On the last two manned missions, an additional Apollo Saturn 1B stood by, ready to rescue the crew in orbit, if needed. The station was damaged during launch when the micrometeoroid shield separated from the workshop and tore away, taking one of two main solar panel arrays with it and jamming the other one so that it could not deploy. This deprived Skylab of most of its electrical power and also removed protection from intense solar heating, threatening to make it unusable. The first crew was able to save it in the first in-space major repair by deploying a replacement heat shield and freeing the jammed solar panels. 
Skylab included the Apollo telescope mount, which was a multi-spectral solar observatory, multiple docking adapters with two docking ports, airlock module with EVA hatches, and the orbital workshop, the main habitable volume. Electrical power came from solar arrays, as well as fuel cells in the docked Apollo command service module. The rear of the station included a large waste tank, propellant tanks for for maneuvering jets, and a heating radiator. Numerous scientific experiments were conducted aboard Skylab during its operational life, and crews were able to confirm the existence of coronal holes in the sun. The Earth Resources Experiment Package, or EREP, was used to view the Earth with sensors that recorded data in the visible, infrared, and microwave spectral regions. Thousands of photographs of Earth were taken, and records for human time spent in orbit were extended. Plans were made to refurbish and reuse Skylab, using the space shuttle to boost its orbit and repair it. However, development of the shuttle was delayed, and Skylab re-entered the Earth's atmosphere and disintegrated in 1979, with debris striking portions of Western Australia. Post-Skylab, NASA space laboratory projects included Space Lab, Shuttle Mirror, and Space Station Freedom, later merged into the International Space Station. Rocket scientist and space architect Werner von Braun, writer Arthur C. Clarke, and other early advocates expected until the 1960s that a space station would be an important early step in space exploration. Von Braun participated in the publishing of a series of influential articles in Collier's titled, Man Will Conquer Space Soon. These articles were written from 1952 to 1954 on manned space travel. Von Braun envisioned a large circular station, 250 feet in diameter, that would rotate to generate gravity and require a fleet of 7,000-ton space shuttles for construction. The 80 men aboard the station would include astronomers operating a telescope, meteorologists to forecast the weather, and soldiers to conduct surveillance. Von Braun expected that future expeditions to the Moon and Mars would leave from this station. The development of transistors, the solar cell, and telemetry led in the 1950s and early 1960s to unmanned satellites that could take photographs of weather patterns or enemy nuclear weapons and send them to Earth. A large station was no longer necessary for such purposes, 
and the United States program to send men to the moon, Project Apollo, was designed not to require in-orbit assembly. A smaller station that a single rocket could launch retain value, however, for scientific purposes. In 1959, Von Braun headed the Development Operations Division at the Army Ballistic Missiles Agency, submitted his final Project Horizon plan to the U.S. Army. The overall goal of Horizon was to place a human on the moon, a mission that would soon be taken over by the rapidly forming NASA administration. Although concentrating on the moon missions, Von Braun also detailed an orbiting laboratory built out of a Horizon upper stage, an idea used for Skylab. A number of NASA centers studied various space station designs in the early 1960s. Studies generally looked at platforms launched by the Saturn V, followed up by crews launched on Saturn 1B using an Apollo Command Service Module or even a Gemini capsule on a Titan C rocket. The latter being much less expensive in the case where cargo was not needed. Proposals ranged from an Apollo base station with two to three men or a small canister for four men with Gemini capsules resupplying it all the way up to a large rotating station with 24 men and an operating lifetime of about five years. A proposal to study the use of Saturn S-4B rockets as manned space laboratories was documented in 1962 by the Douglas Aircraft Company. The Defense Department, known as the DOD, and NASA cooperated closely in many areas of space. In September 1963, NASA and the DOD agreed to cooperate in building a space station. The DOD wanted its own manned facility. However, in December, it announced Manned Orbital Laboratory, or MOLE, a small space station primarily intended for photo reconnaissance using large telescopes directed by two-man crews. The station was the same diameter as the Titan II upper stage and would be launched with the crew riding atop in a modified Gemini capsule with a hatch cut into the heat shield on the bottom side of the capsule. Mole competed for funding with NASA station for the next five years, and politicians and other officials often suggested that NASA participate in Mole or use the DOD design. The military project led to changes to the NASA plans so that they would resemble Mole less. NASA management was concerned 
about losing the 400,000 skilled workers involved in Apollo after landing on the moon in 1969. A reason von Braun, head of NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center during the 1960s, advocated for a smaller station after his large one was not built was that he wished to provide his employees with work beyond developing the Saturn rockets, which would be completely completed relatively early during the project. NASA set up the Apollo Logistics Support System Office, originally intended to study various ways to modify the Apollo hardware for scientific missions. The office initially proposed a number of projects for direct scientific study, including an extended-stay lunar mission, which required two Saturn V launchers, a lunar truck based on the lunar module, a large manned solar telescope using a lunar module and its crew quarters, and small space stations using a variety of lunar modules or command service module based hardware. Although it did not look the space station specifically, over the next two years the office would become increasingly dedicated to this role. In 1965, the office was renamed, becoming the Apollo Applications Program, or AAP. As part of their general work, in August 1964, the Manned Spacecraft Center presented studies on an expendable lab known as Apollo X, short for Apollo Extension System. Apollo X would have replaced the LEM carried on top of the S-4B stage rocket with a small space station, slightly larger than the command service module's service area, containing supplies and experiments for missions between 15 and 45 days duration. Using this study as a baseline, a number of different mission profiles were looked at over the next six months. In November 1964, Von Braun proposed a more ambitious plan to build a much larger station built from the S-2 second stage of a Saturn V. His design replaced the S-4B third stage with an aeroshell, primarily as an adapter for the command service module on top. Inside the shell was a 10-foot cylinder equipment section. On reaching orbit, the S-2 second stage would be vented to remove any remaining hydrogen fuel. Then the equipment section would be slid into it via a large inspection hatch. This became known as a wet 
workshop concept because of the conversion of an active fuel tank. The station filled the entire interior of the S2 stages hydrogen tank with the equipment section forming a spine and living quarters locating between it and the walls of the boosters. This would have resulted in a very large 33 by 45 foot living area. Power was to be provided by solar cells lining the outside of the S2 stage. One problem with this proposal was that it required a dedicated Saturn V launch to fly the station. At the time the design was being proposed, it was not known how many of the then contracted Saturn S5s would be required to achieve a successful moon landing. However, several planned Earth orbit test missions for the LEM and the command service module had been canceled, leaving a number of Saturn 1Bs free for use. Further work led to the idea of building a smaller wet workshop based on the S-4B launched as the second stage of the Saturn 1B. A number of Saturn 4B base stations were studied at Mission Control from 1965 which had much in common with Skylab design that eventually flew. An airlock would be attached to the hydrogen tank in the area designed to hold the LEM, and a minimum amount of equipment would be installed in the tank itself in order to avoid taking up too much fuel volume. Floors in the station would be made from an open metal framework that allowed the fuel to flow through it. After launch, a follow-up mission launched by a Saturn 1B would launch additional equipment, including solar panels, an equipment section, and docking adapter, and various experiments. Douglas Aircraft, builder of the S-4B stage, was asked to prepare proposals along these lines. The company had for several years been proposing stations based on the S-4 stage before it was replaced by the S-4B. On April 1, 1966, Mission Control sent out contracts to Douglas, Grumman, and McDonald for conversion of a S-4B spent stage under the name Saturn S-4B Spent Stage Experiment Support Module, or, or SSESM. In May, astronauts voiced concerns over the purging of the stage's hydrogen tank in space. Nevertheless, in late July, it was announced that 
the orbital workshop would be launched as part of the Apollo mission AS-209. Originally, one of the Earth orbit's command service module test launches, followed by two Saturn I command service module crew launches, AAP-1 and AAP-2. At this time, Mole remained AAP's chief competitor for funds, although the two programs cooperated on technology. NASA considered flying experimentals on the Mole or using its Titan 3C booster instead of the much more expensive Saturn 1B. The agencies decided that the Air Force Station was not large enough and that converting Apollo hardware for use with Titan would be too slow and too expensive. The Department of Defense later canceled Mole in June 1969. There was designs instead of a wet workshop for a dry workshop. Design work continued over the next two years in an era of shrinking budgets. NASA sought $450 million for Apollo applications in fiscal year 1967, for example, but received only $42 million, less than 10% of what they requested. In August 1967, the agency announced that the lunar mapping and base construction missions examined by the AAP were being canceled. Only the Earth orbiting missions remained, named namely the Orbital Workshop and Apollo Telescope Mount Solar Observatory. The success of Apollo 8 in December 1968, launched on the third flight of a Saturn V, made it likely that one would be available to launch a dry workshop. Later, several moon missions were canceled as well, originally to be Apollo missions 18 through 20. The cancellation of these missions freed up three Saturn V boosters for the AAP program, although this would have allowed them to develop Von Braun's original S2-based mission. By this time, so much work had been done on the S4-based design that work continued on this baseline. With the extra power available, the wet workshop was no longer needed. The S1C and S2 lower stages could launch a dry workshop with its interior already prepared directly into orbit. No need to do a risky venting of hydrogen gas out of a tank and slipping in a fully concealed workshop into that space. A dry workshop simplified plans for the interior of the station. Industrial design firm Raymond Lowy William Snaith 
recommend it emphasizing habitability and comfort for the astronauts by, for example, providing a wardroom for meals and relaxation and a window to view the Earth and space. Although astronauts who participated in Skylab planning were dubious about the designer's focus on areas such as color schemes. Habitability had not been previously an area of concern when building spacecraft due to their small volume and brief mission durations, but the Skylab missions would last for months. NASA sent a scientist on Jacques Picard's Ben Franklin submarine in the Gulf Stream in July and August of 1969 to learn how six people would live in an enclosed space for four weeks. Astronauts were uninterested in watching movies on a proposed entertainment center or playing games, but did want books and individual music choices. Food was also important. Early Apollo crews complained about its quality of food, and NASA volunteers found living on the Apollo food for four days on Earth to be completely intolerable. Its taste and composition, in the form of cubes and squeeze tubes, were unpleasant. Skylab food significantly improved on its predecessors by prioritizing edibility over scientific needs. On Skylab, each astronaut had a private sleeping area the size of a small walk-in closet with a curtain, sleeping bag, and locker. Designers also added a shower and toilet. The latter was both for comfort and to obtain precise urine and feces samples for examination back on Earth. What to do in case of an emergency on Skylab? Rescuing astronauts from Skylab was possible in the most likely emergency circumstances. The crew could use the command service module to quickly return to Earth if the station suffered serious damage. If the command service module failed, the spacecraft and the Saturn 1B for the next Skylab mission would have been launched with two astronauts to retrieve the crew. Given Skylab's ample supplies, its residents would have been able to wait up to several weeks for the rescue mission. On August 8, 1969, the McDonnell Douglas Corporation received a contract for the conversion of two existing Saturn 4B stages to the orbital workshop configuration. One of the Saturn 4 test stages was shipped to McDonnell Douglas for the construction of a mock-up in January 1970. The orbital workshop was renamed Skylab in February 1970, as a result of a NASA contest. 
The actual stage that flew was the upper stage of the AS-12 rocket, the S Saturn 4B stage 212. The mission computer used aboard Skylab was the IBM system 4Pi TC1, a relative of the AP-101 space shuttle computer. A Saturn V originally been produced for the Apollo program before the cancellation of Apollo 18, 19, and 20 was repurposed and redesigned to launch Skylab. The Saturn V's upper stage removed, but the avionics remaining in the same position. Skylab was launched on May 14, 1973 by the modified Saturn V. The launch is sometimes referred to as Skylab 1 or SL-1. Severe damage was sustained during the launch and deployment, including the loss of the station's micrometeor shield slash sunshade and one of its main solar panels. Debris from the lost micrometeor shield further complicated matters by pinning the remaining solar panel to the side of the station preventing its deployment and thus leaving the station with a huge power deficit. Immediately following Skylab's launch, Pad A at Kennedy Space Center Launch Complex 39 was deactivated and construction proceeded to modify it for the space shuttle program, originally targeting a maiden launch in March 1979. The manned mission to Skylab would occur from launch pad 39B. Three manned missions designated SL-2, SL-3, and SL-4 were made to the Skylab. The first manned mission, SL-2, launched on May 25, 1973, atop a Saturn 1B rocket and involved extensive repairs to the sun. The crew deployed a parasol-like sunshade through a small instrument port from the inside of the station, bringing station temperatures down to acceptable levels and preventing overheating that would have melted the plastic insulation inside the station and released poisonous gases. This solution was designed by NASA's Mr. Fixit, Jack Kinsler, who won the NASA Distinguished Service Medal for his efforts. The crew conducted further repairs via two spacewalks which are extravehicle activities, or also known as EVAs. The crew stayed in orbit with Skylab for 28 days. Two additional missions followed with the launch dates of July 28, 1973. This mission was known as SL-3. And November 16, 
1973, and this mission was known as SL-4, and the mission durations of 59 and 84 days, respectively. The last Skylab crew returned to Earth on February 8, 1974. Skylab orbited the Earth 2,476 times during the 171 days and 13 hours of its occupation during the three manned Skylab missions. Astronauts performed 10 spacewalks, totaling 42 hours and 16 minutes. Skylab logged about 2,000 hours of scientific and medical experiments, 127,000 frames of film of the sun, and 46,000 frames of the earth. Solar equipments included photographs of eight solar flares and produced valuable results that scientists stated would have been impossible to obtain with unmanned spacecraft. The existence of the sun's coronal holes were confirmed because of these efforts. Many of the experiments conducted investigated the astronauts' adaptation to extended periods of microgravity. A typical day on Skylab began at 6 a.m. Central Time Zone. Although the toilet was small and noisy, both veteran astronauts who had endured earlier missions, rudimentary waste collection systems, and rookies, complemented it. The first crew enjoyed taking a shower once a week, but found drying themselves in weightlessness and vacuuming excess water difficult. Later crews usually cleaned themselves daily with wet washcloths instead of using the shower. Astronauts also found that bending over in weightlessness to put on stocks or tie shoelaces strained their stomach muscles. Breakfast would begin at 7 a.m. Astronauts usually stood to eat as sitting in microgravity also strained their stomachs. They reported that their food, although greatly improved from Apollo, was bland and repetitive, and weightlessness caused utensils, food containers, and bits of food to float away. Also, gas in their drinking water contributed to flatulence. After breakfast and preparation for launch, experiments tests and repairs of spacecraft systems and if possible 90 minutes of physical exercise followed the station had a bicycle and other equipment and the astronauts could jog around the water tank after dinner which was scheduled for 6pm crews performed household chores and prepared for the next day's experiments, 
following lengthy daily instructions. Some were up to 15 meters long, sent via teleprinter. The crews were often busy enough to postpone sleep to a later hour. Each Skylab mission sent a record for the amount of time astronauts spent in space. The station offered what a later study called a highly satisfactory living and working environment for crews with enough room for personal privacy. Although it had a dart set, playing cards, and other recreational equipment, in addition to books and music players, the window with its view of Earth became the most popular way to relax in orbit. Skylab was abandoned after the end of the SL-4 mission in February 1974. But to welcome visitors, the crew left a bag filled with supplies and left the hatch unlocked. NASA discouraged any discussions of additional visits due to the station's age. But in 1977 and 78... When the agency still believed the space shuttle would be ready by 1979, it completed two studies on reusing the station. By September 1978, the agency believed Skylab was safe for crews with all major systems intact and operational. It still had 180 man days of water and 420 man days of oxygen and astronauts could refill both. The station could hold up to about 600 to 700 man days of drinkable water and 420 man days of food. The study cited several benefits from reusing Skylab, which one called a resource worth hundreds of millions of dollars with unique habitability provisions for long durations of spaceflight. Since no more operational Saturn V rockets were available after the Apollo program, four to five shuttle flights and extensive space architecture would have been needed to build another station as large as Skylab's 12,400 cubic feet volume. Its ample size, much greater than that of the shuttle alone, or even the shuttle plus space lab, was enough, with some modifications, for up to seven astronauts of both sexes, and experiments needing a long duration in space even a movie projector for recreation was possible. Proponents of Skylab's reuse also said repairing and upgrading Skylab would provide information on the results of long-duration exposure to space for future missions. The most serious issue for reactivation was station-keeping, 
as one of the station's gyroscopes had failed and the altitude control system needed refueling. These issues would need an EVA to fix or replace. The station had not been destined for extensive resupply. However, while plans had originally called for Skylab crews to perform only limited maintenance, they successfully made major repairs during EVAs, such as the SL-2 crews deploying of the solar panel and the SL-4 crews repair of the primary coolant loop. On a side note, the SL-2 crew fixed one item during EVA by, reportedly, hitting it with a hammer. Some studies also said Beyond the opportunity for space construction and maintenance experience, reactivating the station would free up shuttle flights for other uses and reduce the need to modify the shuttle for long-duration missions. Even if the station were not manned again, went one argument, it would serve as a useful experimental platform. The reactivation of Skylab would have occurred in four phases. An early space shuttle flight would have boosted Skylab to a higher orbit, adding five years of operational life. The shuttle might have pushed or towed the station, but attaching a booster to the teleoperator retrieval system to the station would have been more likely, based on the astronauts' training for the task. Martin Marietta won the contract for $26 million to design the apparatus. The teleoperator retrieval system would contain about three tons of propellant. The remote-controlled booster had TV cameras and was designed for duties such as space construction and servicing and retrieving satellites the shuttle could not reach. After rescuing Skylab, the TRS would have remained in orbit for future use. Alternatively, it could have been used to deorbit Skylab for a safe, controlled re-entry and destruction. Step 2. In two shuttle flights, Skylab would have been refurbished. In January 1982, the first mission would have attached a docking adapter and conducted repairs. In August 1983, a second crew would have replaced several system components. Step 3. In March 1984, shuttle crews would have attached a solar-powered expansion, expansion package, refurbished scientific equipment, and conducted a 30- to 90-day mission using the Apollo telescope mount and Earth resources experiments. And finally, step four. Over five years, Skylab would have been expanded to accommodate six to eight astronauts with a new large docking interface module, additional logistics modules, 
space lab modules and pallets, and an orbital vehicle space docking using the shuttle's external tank. The first three phases would have required about $60 million in 1980 dollars, not including launch costs. Greater than expected solar activity heated the outer layers of the Earth's atmosphere and thereby increased the drag on Skylab. By late 1977, NORAD accurately forecast the re-entry in mid-1979. A National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration scientist criticized NASA for using an inaccurate model for the second most intense spun spot cycle in a century and for ignoring NOAA predictions published in 1976. Re-entry of the USSR's nuclear-powered Cosmos 954 in January 1978 and the resulting radioactive debris fall in northern Canada drew more attention to Skylab's orbit. Although Skylab did not contain radioactive materials, the State Department warned NASA about the potential diplomatic percussions of station debris. Battelle Memorial Institute forecasted up to 25 tons of metal debris would land in 500 pieces over an area 4,000 miles long and 1,000 miles wide. The lead-lined film vault, for example, might land intact at 400 feet per second. Ground controllers re-established contact with Skylab in March 1978 and recharged its batteries. Although NASA worked on plans to reboost Skylab with the space shuttle through 1978 and the TRS was almost complete, the agency gave up in December when it became clear that the shuttle would not be ready in time. In its first flight, STS-1 did not occur until April 1981. Also rejected were proposals to launch the TRS using one or two unmanned rockets or attempt to destroy the station with missiles. Skylab's demise was an international media event with merchandising of t-shirts and hats with bullseyes wagering on the time and place of re-entry, and nightly news reports. The San Francisco Examiner offered a $10,000 prize for the first piece of Skylab delivered to its offices. The competing Chronicle offered $200,000 if a subscriber suffered personal or property damage. NASA calculated that the odds of the station re-entry debris hitting a human were 1 in 152, and that the odds of any particular person being hit were 1 in 600 billion, although the odds of debris hitting a city of 100,000 or more were 1 in 7, and special teams were readied to head to any country hit by debris requesting help. In the hours before re-entry, ground controllers adjusted Skylab's orientation to minimize the risk of re-entry in a populated area. 
They aimed the station at a spot 110 miles south southeast of Cape Town, South Africa, and re-entry began at approximately 1637 UTC, July 11, 1979. The Air Force provided data from a secret tracking system able to monitor re-entry. The station did not burn up as fast as NASA expected, however. Due to a 4% calculation error, debris landed southeast of Perth, Western Australia, and was found between Esperance and Rolina from 31 degrees to 34 degrees south and 122 degrees to 126 degrees east, about 130 to 150 kilometer radius around Baladonia. Residents and an airplane pilot saw dozens of colorful firework-like flares as large pieces broke up in the atmosphere. The Shire of Esperance facetiously fined NASA $400 for littering, a fine which remained unpaid for 30 years. The fine was paid on April 2009 when a radio show host raised the funds from his morning show listeners and paid the fine on behalf of NASA. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet? Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.